Thank you for tuning in to the Voice Epilepsy Podcast, which has been brought to you by the BC Epilepsy Society and the international I Am A Voice For Epilepsy Awareness Campaign. The Voice Epilepsy Podcast introduces a variety of topics related to epilepsy, including medications, treatment, law, employment, surgery, mental health, stress, and stigma, among many others. Whether you are a person living with epilepsy or you have a personal or professional interest in epilepsy, the Voice Epilepsy Podcast is the podcast for you. In today's episode of the Voice Epilepsy Podcast, you will be hearing a presentation by Dr. Mary Connolly on pediatric epilepsy surgery, entitled Epilepsy Surgery in Children and Youth, the Benefits of Early Surgery. By listening to this podcast, you will learn about the types of epilepsy surgery performed in the pediatric population, the evaluation for epilepsy surgery, and the evidence that early surgery is associated with improved outcomes. Dr. Connolly is a clinical professor of pediatric neurology at the University of British Columbia and is the head of pediatric neurology, the director of the comprehensive epilepsy program, and a clinician investigator at BC Children's Hospital. She graduated in medicine from Trinity College Dublin and completed her residency in internal medicine and pediatrics in Ireland. She then trained in pediatric neurology and epilepsy at the University of British Columbia, followed by an epilepsy fellowship at the Children's Hospital Boston and Harvard Medical School. Her clinical and research interests include tuberous sclerosis complex, Dravet syndrome, outcomes following epilepsy surgery in children and youth, using telehealth to improve access to epilepsy care in BC, and integration of next-generation genetic testing to improve neurological outcomes in children and youth with epilepsy. She was the co-chair of the Canadian Pediatric Epilepsy Network from 2013 to 2017 and was the past president of the Canadian Association of Child Neurologists. She received the inaugural Clinical Practice and Advocacy Award from the Canadian League Against Epilepsy in 2015 and is currently the president-elect of the Canadian League Against Epilepsy. She is also a member of the BC Epilepsy Society Professional Advisory Committee and we are honored to have her present on pediatric epilepsy surgery. Just one second. Can you see my screen? Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to discuss epilepsy surgery in children and youth, and I hope to convince you of the benefits of early surgery. It's a very broad topic to cover within an hour, but I'll, I hope at the end of this uh, session that you will, um, why is this not moving here? Actually, firstly, I want to just, I have a few disclosures, but none of them are um, uh, contravene. Um, I, I got some funding uh, for some various drug studies, and I'm a co-investigator on an NIH-funded study on ethical aspects of neurotechnologies in children. And I'm also going to address a treatment that's not yet approved in Canada called responsive neurostimulation. At the end of this presentation, I hope that you will understand more about the indications and types of surgery and neuromodulation for treatment-resistant epilepsy. Be aware of the evaluation or workup for epilepsy surgery, including the more recent um, robotic-assisted stereotactic EEG, and that you will understand the benefits of early epilepsy surgery in childhood. My key messages are that epilepsy surgery is a very effective treatment 
and in some cases curative, in carefully selected patients. It's underutilized all over the world and outcomes um, are better with early surgery. I'm going to start with a patient and this is a young man who's now 19 years old who started at five months of age with focal unaware or what we used to call complex partial seizures. At 11 months, he developed epileptic spasms. He failed five anti-seizure medications. MRI demonstrated that he had an abnormality in the right temporal lobe. He went on to have resection of that abnormality at 34 months of age, and it showed a low-grade tumor arising in a malformation of brain development. He's seizure-free. Um, since surgery, he has mild attention difficulties, he's employed, and he doesn't have any mood issues. This is an example of a very um, good outcome following epilepsy surgery with a relatively short duration of epilepsy prior to surgery. What are the challenges we have with epilepsy in 2021? Seizures are treatment resistant in 30 to 40% of patients. We know that cognitive learning and neuropsychiatric comorbidities are, are high. Mortality is increased with uncontrolled epilepsy. And only a small percentage of patients who would benefit from epilepsy surgery are actually referred for assessment. There are a lot of misconceptions related to the risks of um, surgery on the brain. The goals of epilepsy treatment are to cure disease, control seizures without side effects, and we have to balance the therapeutic effect and side effects and uh, sort of a cost-benefit ratio. So in terms of the context, the treatments we have for epilepsy in 2021, firstly, it's anti-seizure medications. And despite all the new anti-seizure medications that are on the market, it hasn't really made a big dent in the 30 to 40% of patients that do not respond to anti-seizure medications. We have dietary therapies with the ketogenic diet and modifications of it, surgery, brain modulation, and this includes vagus nerve stimulation, deep brain stimulation, and responsive stimulation. Some newer techniques um, where you do very focused heat um, treatment or ultrasound treatment uh, to treat the, uh, the lesion that's causing the seizures. We have some precision treatments guided by advances in genetic testing. And then we have some repurposing of um, some medications that are used for other diseases. But anti-seizure medications, dietary therapies, and surgery are the three main uh, categories of treatment. What is drug-resistant epilepsy? Well, it's defined as failure to respond to at least two appropriate anti-seizure medications. So if we take a patient with new onset epilepsy, about 50% will respond to the first medication tried, another 11% to the second, and about 4% to the third. And after that, the chance of responding is low. It's not zero, but this is where we end up with the approximately 35% who don't respond to medications. We know that having uncontrolled epilepsy is very risky. There's associated risk of injuries, side effects of long-term anti-seizure medication, mood issues, cognitive and memory difficulties, increased mortality and morbidity, increased healthcare utilization, and problems with education, working, driving, and social functioning.
So if we look at the objectives of epilepsy surgery in children, the primary one is to reduce seizure frequency and actually we aim to stop seizures to reduce the negative effects of ongoing seizures on learning, development and behavior. We want to improve quality of life and to reduce mortality. Now, in terms of the evidence that surgery is superior to medical treatment, the first randomized control study was performed here in Canada and published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. The lead author is Dr. Sam Weeb, who's head of the epilepsy program in Calgary. And they looked at patients uh, on the waiting list for temporal lobe surgery, and they compared the group who had surgery versus those who remained on the waiting list. And at one year, 58% of those who had epilepsy surgery were seizure-free versus 8% of those on anti-seizure medication. And the um, quality of life, employment, and attendance at school was better in the surgical group. There was another study in uh, the US. It was a short study, a small study actually, and 11 of 15 who were treated surg surgically were seizure-free at two years versus zero of 23 in the medically treated group. There's only been one randomized control study of epilepsy surgery versus medical treatment in children. And this was from India, published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. And this looked at a population of 116 children who were under 18 years of age with drug resistant epilepsy. 57 had immediate surgery versus medical treatment in 59 patients. They looked at seizure freedom at one year following surgery. In the surgery group, 77% were seizure free versus 7% in the medically treated group. And again, behavior and quality of life were significantly better in the surgical group. Now the surgical management of epilepsy, what are the types of surgery? that we use. So we talk about resections, which is essentially removing a part of the brain. And this can be a small area of one lobe, and it's called a focal cortical resection. If it involves multiple lobes, for example, the frontal and temporal lobe, we'd call it a multilobar resection. If it's just resection of a, a, a tumor, we call it a lesionectomy. Um, if it involves the hippocampus and amygdala, which are structures in the temporal lobe, if only those areas are resected, we call it an amygdalo hippocampectomy. I know these are kind of complicated words. And if it's a, an operation, the most, um, the most uh, radical operation we do is a total disconnection of one whole side of the brain, that's called hemispheric surgery. And we tend to do what's called a functional uh, hemispherectomy or disconnection, which I'll explain. And then these newer treatments are, uh, are ablative surgery using MRI-guided uh, stereotactic laser ablation or thermocoagulation. And I'll show, show that an exciting, an exciting area and also focused um, ultrasound. We're not yet performing either of those procedures here at Children's, but they're on our wish list to hope that hopefully we can do them soon. So this is an example, I hope you don't mind, this is an example of a small area of, of what we call a focal cortical resection in a small area of the brain. This is the uh, operation for a diffuse disease involving one side of the brain. And the technique we use here at Children's is called a periinsular hemispherotomy. And essentially the surgeon 
this is um, looking down through the middle of the brain. The surgeon resects this window of tissue here involving the frontal and temporal lobe around the insula. And then from within the, the spinal fluid space or the ventricle, they disconnect um, the uh, surface from deeper structures. They resect the uh, temporal lobe and divide this structure here called the corpus callosum. So it's, this is quite a complicated operation. It was designed by a Dr. Villamour who used to work at the Montreal Neuro, but this is one of the most common forms of functional hemispherectomy that's performed. Now this type of operation is not formed, performed commonly, and it is performed for conditions such as this one is a, a baby with an extensive port wine stain and um, extensive lesion on one side of the brain. This is an example of a disorder that affects, causes overgrowth of one side of the brain called hemimegalencephaly. And this is a condition called Rasmussen's, which causes inflammation, most commonly of one side of the brain. Occasionally it can be bilateral, but usually it's just on one side. So the, this operation is performed for diseases that cause extensive uh, damage to one side of the brain. Another uh, indication would be an extensive stroke in a, in a newborn baby that uh, ends up uh, causing treatment-resistant focal epilepsy. Other types of surgical interventions are called disconnection. So one, um, you may have heard of a term called corpus callosotomy. The corpus callosum links the two sides of the brain. This is not a curative procedure. This procedure is predominantly performed for children and adults who have seizures during which they fall to the ground. And the uh, anterior two thirds of this structure can be divided or the entire structure. So this is regarded as a palliative type of surgery, but can have a very dramatic result actually in, in select uh, patients. And then neuromodulation, these are also palliative treatments not aiming to cure epilepsy, and these include vagus nerve stimulation, deep brain st stimulation, and responsive neurostimulation. And the main advances in the area of surgery are using this thermocoagulation, which is very focused heat um, that can be uh, uh, applied to an area to um, uh, treat the uh, lesion that's causing the epilepsy. And I'll show an example of that, or very focused ultrasound. We have a new generation of vagus nerve stimulators called Aspire that pick up the change in heart rate before you see a visible seizure. Deep brain stimulation is not new, but the applications in epilepsy are, are newer, and then responsive neurostimulation. Now, the workup for epilepsy surgery, some patients need very a very minimal workup because it's very clear from the history, the MRI, video EG monitoring during which we record their typical seizures neuropsychological testing, and usually we like to do an assessment for depression and anxiety and other, other psychiatric issues, and that's called the phase one evaluation. And very often at the end of this, we can say, well, these seizures are coming from the left temporal lobe. Um, this is what uh, surgical option uh, there is. In other patients, it's much more difficult to find out where the seizures are coming from. And these patients, we use some functional imaging. So, so you may have heard of SPECT scanning, which this looks at blood flow uh, during a seizure. So we try to record um, 
using, we give an, a tracer into a vein during a seizure within 10 seconds of the onset, and we then scan the brain. We look at the uptake of the tracer. We also have a, a scan at rest when there's no seizure, and then we subtract the um, uh, information from in between a seizure, from during a seizure, and that helps to light up the area where the seizures are beginning. Um, PET scanning looks at glucose metabolism throughout the brain, another functional uh, test. And in some patients, there's low metabolism in the area that's causing the seizure. Functional MRI allows us to look at language networks within the brain, the area of the brain controlling hand function, visual pathway, and in some instances, memory. And then there are some patients at the end of all of this, we still haven't, we still can't um, identify where the seizures are coming from. And we then recommend um, putting EEG electrodes in the brain or on the surface of the brain or a combination of, of, the, of these procedures. So MRI is enormously important. If you can find an abnormality on MRI and it's in a safe place for the surgeon to resect it, then the outcome following surgery is, you know, 70, 80% of people are seizure free. And this is an example of a very subtle area of abnormal brain development. And you probably can see this blurriness here in the occipital, parieto-occipital region. And it's really important one MRI it's not the same as another MRI. You have to really know what you're looking for. It has to be interpreted by somebody who's experienced in interpreting MRIs in patients with epilepsy. Because as I said, changes are often missed on MRI. So this is another example of a very subtle uh, abnormality that was missed on the original MRI. And sometimes they're kind of deep in the depth of the, of, of the uh, sulcus of the brain. And then newer techniques, this is an example of uh, new techniques that are performed by one of our colleagues, Dr. Dewey Schrader, where they can look and do very detailed analysis of regions of the brain and this where they can pick up the, um, these are post-processing after the MRI has been performed. Now I mentioned functional MRI and uh, spectrum PET scanning, and I'm going to show you some of these. So this is an example of um, a, a, an ictospect during a seizure showing the area that's lighting up uh, within the brain. This is a functional MRI demonstrating the area of the brain that's controlling the hand function, function on the, the right hand. This is activation in the left motor cortex. And this is an example of a MEG, which is, we don't have this readily available yet in Vancouver, um, like on a, on a, on a regular uh, uh, basis, but this can um, pick up in some patients clusters of spikes that can help in localizing where the seizures are coming from. This is um, subdural grids. So this is, this, the, this is um, I hope none of you are too squeamish, but this is, this, the skull is open and the coverings of the brain, this is the dura, and then the electrodes are placed on the brain surface. This is very invasive. And um, this is the technique we've been using in pediatrics until uh, stereotactic EEG has become available. We still need to do this in, in carefully selected patients. This is an example of showing us the area of the brain when we stimulated these electrodes, we got here we got movement of the thumb, movement of the hand, 
um, uh, the elbow, the face, the tongue. Um, so this allows you to work out the parts of the brain that are controlling function, especially if you think the seizures are coming from close to the hand area or the language area. And video EG monitoring, this is when we try to record seizures. We like to record the typical seizures that the patient is experiencing. In our experience, about one in five of our patients who come to epilepsy surgery require invasive EG uh, electrodes. And this is mainly because we need to work out the functions of the brain. We're worried that the seizures are coming from close to the um, hand area, the language network, and um, that's sort of the main purpose for invasive EEG monitoring. This is an example of a patient who has, uh, this is a patient who had tuberous sclerosis complex, and this is a depth electrode going into the brain, and this is a subdural uh, grid electrode being placed on the brain surface, and this is the area that was resected. The seizures were actually coming from within this, uh, this area, so it was a very, very small uh, resection. So I'm going to show you now the stereotactic EG. This is our new, uh, our new Rosa machine that we acquired, that our neurosurgeons acquired in the fall of 2019. And um, so this is a robotic assistant stereotactic EG. And this is where really the surgeon can plan the operation out in advance, taking the uh, information from the MRI and deciding where he wants to place the electrodes based on all the data that we have, the EEG data, the SPECT, the MRI, the PET, and then the, the electrodes then are placed through these um, uh, regions here within the brain. In this particular, this is an example. It's called minimally invasive. I actually don't think this is minimally invasive, um, quite honestly, but it's less invasive than um, than the, the opening up the skull and putting electrodes in on the brain surface. This is an example of a patient we had recently, and this is um, the various uh, depth electrodes. And in this particular child, 29 seizures were recorded, all coming from just three contacts on, um, four contacts on this depth uh, recording. And this child was able to go and have very successful um, surgery. These are examples of, this is um, an example of the, the, the various trajectories or how the electrodes are placed. This is in a temporal lobe patient. This is more common in, in, in uh, adults and children in the insula. So you can plan, and obviously the planning is important because the surgeon wants to avoid any blood vessels so that they reduce the risk of bleeding with the procedure. So, the advantages of the stereotactic EEG is that it's much better tolerated than subdural electrodes. With subdural electrodes, the children and adults tend to have a lot of headaches and vomiting and their eyes often close from fluid collecting around the forehead and around the eyes. There's fewer complications and patients end up actually being discharged from hospital uh, considerably sooner than with subdural electrodes. Now, in looking at complications of you, you think, well, you're putting electrodes within the brain, there must be some potential complications. And this is a study published in 2019, looking at 549 patients. There was a, over 7,000 electrodes were placed. 105 of the patients had some bleeding. 
but in the majority of them, there are absolutely, absolutely no symptoms. There were kind of microscopic um, hemorrhages. In 2.2%, they had symptoms related to that. Nine of the patients had a transient deficit. One patient in this particular study did, uh, did uh, pass away from complications. Less than 1%, had a permanent deficit from the stereotactic EG. So, you know, there are risks, of course, with any procedure that's done for epilepsy. And these risks have to be taken into context of the risks that are associated with uncontrolled epilepsy. And without question, the risks with uncontrolled epilepsy are much, much greater than the risks with these procedures. So this is an example of a patient who had um, the, had, uh, the uh, depth electrodes placed. And then um, the seizures were found to be coming from just a few uh, of the uh, electrodes. And then the surgeon was able to do a laser ablation at the time of taking out, just before he removed the electrodes. They can also do, um, using heat uh, thermocoagulation, they can apply heat, intense heat to the area that the seizures are coming from. And this again is more suitable for um, deep structures. So examples are, this is a tumor, a benign tumor that occurs in the hypothalamus, which is very deep within the brain. And these are small areas of abnormal brain development. Stereotactic um, laser ablation, uh, actually it was available at VGH uh, for cancer in, in patients with brain tumors. I don't think it's been actively used at the moment. And it is available for children in Toronto and Calgary. And we're hoping to have it available here at BC Children's Hospital in the next year. And this is an example of a very deep tumor that was treated with, um, with uh, uh, thermocoagulation. Now, what are complications of epilepsy surgery? Well, there are general complications with any surgery. So for example, you have to have an anesthetic, uh, there can be bleeding, and there can be infection. And these risks occur with appendicectomy, with tonsillectomy and are, are a risk with any, really with any form, of, any form of surgery. And then there are complications that relate to surgery on the brain itself. A common one is blood irritating the surface of the brain, causing headaches and fever. That's treated with steroids. Um, obviously, uh, the surgeon could accidentally damage a blood vessel, and that could result in a stroke. Um, the depending on the area. So for example, with the hippocampus, there can be some worsening of memory, but we know that if you continue to have uncontrolled temporal lobe seizures, memory deteriorates with time from the seizures alone. It's very rare for surgery to cause worsening of seizures, and it's very rare to have mortality. With, but mortality, the risk for mortality is greater in, say, a very small baby with a low blood volume who has an extensive hemispheric operation. But mortality, thankfully, in our, in our experience, we've not yet had any mortality with, related to epilepsy surgery. Now, in terms of temporal lobe surgery, serious complications occur in 1% to 2% of patients with stroke being the most serious, followed by an injury to the third nerve um, that causes a droopy eyelid and problems with eye movement and aphasia, which is affecting, um, affecting uh, language. 
in a, a systematic review of complications of epilepsy surgery and in invasive monitoring, major complications occurred in 1.5% of patients and minor complications in 5.1% of patients. And the most common complication was a visual field. So not being able to see in one part of your visual field. And in some cases, we can predict that with surgery and it's recognized as a risk associated with surgery. Um, mortality was 0.4% in temporal lobe surgery and 1.2% in surgery outside the temporal lobe. Now, if we look at long-term epilepsy surgery outcome, in Europe, they have a, a European Epilepsy Brain Bank, and they have uh, data on 9,147 patients from 37 epilepsy centers. And they looked at surgeries performed between 2000, 2000 and 2012. And in this population, there was 2,953 children. The most common abnormality was malformations of brain development, followed by tumors, then followed by um, hippocampal or mesial temporal lobe sclerosis. They looked at seizure outcomes at one, two, and five years. The best results were seen in those with brain tumors. They're usually low-grade brain tumors, I should add, when seizures occur with, um, uh, with epilepsy in, young, in children. 78% were seizure-free at one year and 74% at five years. When there was no lesion on pathology, so when the pathologist examined the brain and the brain looked normal, 60% were seizure-free at one year and 50% at five years. Now that's compared to less, well below 10% if you just went with medical therapy. So it's still a good outcome, but, but not, not optimal. And it's impossible to get every, you know, to result in everybody uh, having a good outcome. The time, now, if we look at the timing of surgery from seizure onset, so in this uh, study, so there were 6,900 adults. The age of surgery ranged from 35 uh, plus or minus 11 years, with aged onset of seizures being 15 plus or minus 11.8. So you can see that adults had epilepsy on average 20 years or more before they went on to have surgery. In the pediatric age group, age at surgery was on average 9.3 years, plus or minus 5.2, and age at seizure onset was 3.8 uh, years, plus or minus 4.1. So they had on average a duration of epilepsy of 5.3 years. And in, if we look at all comers, adults and children, 76% of all patients had seizure onset in childhood. So we can see that there's a very long wait for patients to come to surgery. Now, they looked um, in 1990, the average age for children to have surgery was 5.9 years. And in 2010, there was 20 years later, 4.8 years. They found that outcome was better with younger age, um, if the pathology was a brain tumor, the location and early surgery was associated with improved, uh, with much better seizure outcome and developmental outcome. So in another study, um, they looked at 50 preschool children and 70% of them had an IQ less than 70 before surgery. And at most recent follow-up, they found that 11 of them had a 15 point or more gain in IQ or developmental quotient. And shorter duration of epilepsy was the only predictor of um, final IQ and developmental outcome. So demonstrating that in some children, you may get an improvement in their uh, development and intelligence with earlier surgery.
Now, if we look at anti-seizure medications, obviously everybody wants to know how soon can we get off anti-seizure medications. So in the European Epilepsy Brain Bank, they had looked at um, those who had who were five years post-epilepsy surgery. They had 1,354 1, children in this uh, group, and children are more likely to be off anti-seizure medications. If they looked at the group with tumors, 55% were seizure-free and off anti-seizure medications at follow-up. When does failure of epilepsy surgery occur? Well, it can be associated with a long duration of epilepsy if the MRI is normal. If the MRI or PET scan shows bilateral or abnormalities on both sides of the brain. Of the brain. And the, lastly, if it's impossible to resect the entire epileptic network, and this is, this, in our experience, that's been the most common reason for a surgical failure. And that was because the risk of resecting the entire area was too great. So for example, if it involved the language network or it involved the hand function, we would try to preserve uh, those and limit the resection. Now I'm going to change gears and talk a little bit about vagus nerve stimulation. So the vagus nerve, um, uh, runs here in the, in the neck and has a very extensive connections um, in the brain. This was approved for treatment-resistant epilepsy in 1997 and then for depression in 2005. And this is the generator. There have been many uh, variations on the generator since these were first developed. They've become much smaller and they last longer, but they, it's placed here in the chest under the skin. And then the um, lead uh, links up to the uh, vagus nerve in the neck. So it's a little bit like a pacemaker type um, device. And um, in terms of indications, well, if we think there's a good chance that uh, a, a, an operation on the brain could cure, cure the epilepsy or result in a very good outcome, we would not recommend vagus nerve stimulation because the, um, it, is a, it is more of a palliative uh, procedure. So we tend to use it when seizures involve um, multiple areas or both sides of the brain, or if there's a generalized epilepsy with abnormalities that are diffuse or generalized in some of um, patients who failed surgery and it's not possible uh, to do any further uh, resection or if surgery is not an option. And this is an example of how the it's, it's a, at our center, it's done as a day procedure, it takes two to three hours. There's an incision in the chest and an incision in the neck. And um, then uh, we program the device. Um, it used to be that you'd have to come to the hospital here every week or two until we got reached the target settings. But with the new, uh, the new um, uh, generation of vagal nerve stimulators, we can pre-program them. So this is the new um, uh, responsive, um, or, or sort of the latest model, Aspire of the vagus nerve stimulator that picks up the change in heart rate that can occur during a seizure. And we can um, set this to pick up, obviously you don't want to pick up an increase in heart rate associated with, with, um, with exercise, but we, we know how to um, differentiate the two. And um, in terms of the results with vagus nerve stimulation, it helps about half the patients who have it implanted. So that's about a 50% reduction. Uh, a colleague um, 
in uh, at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto is work uh, is is involved in studies trying to predict patients who will respond best to vagal nerve stimulation, and that would it would be wonderful if we could predict that. We've found it um, in our experience for patients with seizures arising from multiple regions that it was more effective and also patients who had long seizures or status epilepticus. In some patients, you can reduce the number or dosing of anti-seizure medications, but no patient really, very few patients would come off of anti-seizure medications with a vagal nerve stimulator. In my experience, none of my patients have come off an anti-seizure medication. So in terms of risks, it's very low risk. The main, the main risk really is if, if the, you get an infection because it's a foreign uh, body, you may have to remove the device. And you know the current generation costs you know, up to $30,000. So it's, we, you know, to have infection of a, um, a generator is, is really a problem. So um, in terms of long-term, uh, there's very few really long-term um, adverse effects or side effects of vagus nerve stimulation. Um, the um, cosmetic issues are usually not a major issue. In some patients, the battery needs to be replaced um, and uh, you can get lead, lead uh, damage that would also require replacement. Now, deep brain stimulation uh, of the, there's various structures where you can stimulate, but one is the um, anterior nucleus of the thalamus. And at the Hospital for Sick Children in the last year, they have started doing this for uh, a very severe form of epilepsy children called Lennox Gastaut syndrome. And um, we are hoping that to have this available here in BC again in the next uh, couple of years. And this is um, the results in this uh, study that was published in adults were comparable to the results with vagus nerve stimulation. They had a small number of patients in this study that became seizure free. Responsive neurostimulation. I have one patient who's had this uh, performed in the United States, but this is um, also called neuropace. It is quite an, an invasive uh, procedure. You can see this is the um, device and it's actually placed in the skull. So this is performed for, um, so this is an example of, of the device where it's placed, and then it's connected to electrodes that are placed within the brain. So you have to know where the seizures are coming from exactly. And um, usually it's, it's done for seizures that come from eloquent brain, meaning say hand area or language area. So you can have a maximum of three regions in the brain, but typically that it's typically it's two uh, two uh, regions, and the uh, so it's almost continuous EEG recording. And then when the uh, device picks up that the seizure is started, it can the stimulus is induced and then try to abort the the the, um, the seizure. Now, um, so this is not yet approved in Canada for children, um, or and, and it's not really. It's not used extensively in child in Canada either for for adults, but certainly will be if before too long. It's been approved in the United States. Now I thought I'd maybe give you a little, share a little bit about our our, our um, epilepsy surgery program here at Children's Hospital, just to give you a little bit of context. The program was started in 1994 by um, 
when I finished my fellowship in Boston and then with Dr. John Kessel, who subsequently moved to Utah, and then with Dr. Steinbach and now with Dr. Tamber and uh, Dr. Singal. And I have several colleagues, I'll acknowledge everyone afterwards. But we've tried to evaluate children in a very systematic manner. And um, I maintained a database from starting in practice. And I'm going to present data on children where we have five or more years follow up data available. At this point, we have over 500 patients who've had undergone epilepsy surgery. So I'm going to present on 362. And at the time, that was 8.5% of the children we were actively following. And if we look at um, surgery outside the temporal lobe was the most common, comprising 35%, 28% in the temporal lobe, then followed by hemispheric operation, then corpus callosotomy and vagal nerve stimulators. In our, um, now, in, if you look at adults, the majority will have temporal lobe. That would be the most common, followed by extra temporal. 26 children had two or more procedures, and seven had three or more procedures. If we look at the 99 children who had temporal lobe surgery, they were followed up for a mean of 7.3 years. 75.8% were seizure free. And at the last follow up, uh, 50 just over 50% were on no anti-seizure medications. If we looked at the extra temporal, so this is patients with seizures coming from the frontal or parietal or occipital or multiple lobes, we had on average six years follow-up with 58.9% seizure-free and 25% on no anti-seizure medications. For hemispheric uh, surgery, there were 42 children. We had a mean of 9.5 years follow-up, 80% were seizure-free, and 50% were on no anti-seizure medications. Without question, this is the most effective operation, but it's a very, it's a really major operation, and it's, it's reserved for diseases that involve very extensive areas throughout one side of the brain. If we look at surgical failure, so we had 27 patients who had two surgeries. After the second surgery, 15 were seizure-free, and the most common cause was an abnormality brain development followed by a tumor. Um, seven patients had three or more surgeries, and three of these were seizure-free. And we had some patients who had um, uh, more than one pathology. So, the most common was a tumor arising in an area of abnormal brain development. And then we had a patient who had tumor, abnormal development, and scarring, hippocampal sclerosis. So failure of a first surgery doesn't mean that further surgery is not possible. Um, and that's important. If we look at why, we're, why did we fail? Well, and the most common reason that the surgeon could not remove the entire epilepsy network because it would cause too much uh, negative effects on the child. Um, the second was tuberous stenosis complex. We know that's a multi-system multi disease that involves multiple areas of the brain, and it's very difficult to get complete seizure control with that. And then we had another patient who turned out to have an immune-mediated medi epilepsy, and um, this is a whole new category of uh, causes of epilepsy that we were not able to test for when she underwent um, epilepsy surgery. In terms of serious complications, we had no mortality. Four patients uh, did have a stroke 
um, two had had were having their second or third operation, and two occurred on the first surgery. Um, and um, in one patient who had uh, surgery in the right uh, temporal region, he had problems with facial recognition, which has gradually improved but didn't resolve um, completely. This is a study by my colleague, Dr. Steinbach, where uh, we looked at epilepsy surgery um, in Canada um, under three years of age. And 40% um, of the population had surgery under one year of age. There was one death and it was in, uh, occurred during the surgery. 35% had um, complications, almost all were minor. And 67.3% were seizure-free and another 14% had um, a greater than 90% reduction in seizures. 7.5% were, were felt not to have a, a benefit from surgery. So why is epilepsy surgery underutilized? I think there's a lack of knowledge about eligibility criteria for surgery and results of surgery. There's a great fear of operating on the brain, of course, because you know it, it's, we, we know that it's a delicate structure. And I think we do all underestimate the impact of uncontrolled seizures on brain development and on function of individuals. Like I think uncontrolled epilepsy comes with a lot of risks. Um, there's a huge treat treatment gap. This is looking at the United States. So there's about 3 million people in the States with epilepsy. About 1 million have treatment resistant epilepsy. And when this study was published, only 3,000 epilepsy surgeries were performed annually, and 3,500 vagal nerve stimulators were um, implanted. And the average duration of treatment-resistant epilepsy before surgery was 20 years. So you know, we, there's really huge um, treatment gaps. So in conclusion, um, I hope that you have more awareness of the advances in epilepsy surgery and um, the workup for epilepsy surgery. Uh, the role of vagus nerve stimulation and neuromodulation, and some um, idea on the uh, outcomes following epilepsy surgery. So I'd firstly like to thank all the patients and families who taught us so much, you know, um, and then all my colleagues, uh, Kelly Anderson, our nurse clinician, my colleagues in neurology, neurosurgery, uh, neurophysiology, neuroimaging, Dr. Bjornsson and the functional MRI team, neuropsychology, neuropathology, psychiatry, and then our staff in ICU, anesthesia, and OR, who are very involved. So it really takes um, a big team to um, evaluate and, and treat patients uh, using epilepsy surgery. Thank you for joining us for another Voice Epilepsy podcast episode. Don't forget to follow us on all of our BC Epilepsy Society and I Am A Voice For Epilepsy Awareness social media platform. In closing, remember, you matter and we are here for you. We hope you'll make Thursdays our epilepsy date night and tune in to the Voice Epilepsy podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.